Thanks, Ray. Thanks. This is, in fact, <clears throat> the first time I'm taking Dr. Favut's out in public. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity and, and look forward to, to comments. Um, the, the talk is, is specifically about the role of ideas in, in Favut's career. Favut, obviously, Prime Minister of South Africa, 1958 <laughs> to 66. And, and the point of the talk is to tease out a paradox. Um, people speak of Favut today primarily through two metaphors. And, and the first is that of archite architect. Habitually, people call him the architect of apartheid, um, which is also a metaphor by which he was known in his own day and, and which he himself cultivated. And, and the sense behind architect, of course, is that he was working on a blueprint or, or a set of plans, and that his project was to redraw a structure, to redraw the structure of a society. And, and secondly, he's referred to also very commonly as an engineer, or more precisely as the social engineer who tried to contrive a society he imagined. And, and these two metaphors, architect and engineer, are, are both a way of saying that Favot is remembered as a high modernist. Um, now, in the realm of statecraft, a high modernist is a person who, by definition, thinks a great deal about the future. Um, he, he, in fact, sees the present only as raw material, which he categorizes, measures, orders, and re-engineers in order to design something else from it, and that something is going to fill out the future. In other words, a high modernist is interested in the present only instrumentally. Um, his, his real interest is, is, is fashioning it into something else. And, and that's how Favut is remembered today as uh, 20th century South Africa's great infamous social engineer. And I want to argue, though, and, and here's the paradox, that Favut was in fact the very opposite sort of political actor who thinks primarily about the future. I want to argue that he became, and at risk of putting it a little too melodramatically, a nihilist, in as much as his primary purpose was to acquire and retain power rather than to refashion the world. I'll argue that by the time he died, it's highly questionable that he believed that the apartheid project could accomplish any of its major stated aims, and yet he was nonetheless committed to holding course because he believed that it was the course by which he might best wield and retain power. In calling him a nihilist, I'm not suggesting that he didn't care about the future. I, I really wouldn't know. That would be too speculative. I don't know what he thought when he played with his grandchildren, or I know that he did play with them a lot. Um, I'm just suggesting that as a practitioner of statecraft, he wasn't thinking much about his grandchildren's futures. And, and the paradox is that he did this, the, the uh, statecraft, using a language and a canon of bureaucratic action that were essentially high modernist. That is to say, a language and a canon of bureaucratic action whose ostensible aim was to engineer the future. If my argument's right, why is it of any interest? Uh, for two reasons. And the one is historical and the other contemporary. And I'll allude to the, the first briefly now and discuss the other one in more depth at the end. One reason it's of interest is that it may shed light on others who led African countries during the same period. On the one hand, it may seem eccentric to compare uh, a white supremacist to Nkrumah or Kawunda or Nyerere or uh, Kenyatta, who were the very opposite of Kavut. Uh, they were black nationalists dedicated to leading their people to independence from colonial powers. But then again, like Favut, there were high modernists who ostensibly believed they would modernize their countries from their presidential offices. So if my analysis of Favut holds, it's only natural to at least explore Africa's other high modernists in similar terms, and more generally to explore what sort of political functions the project of modernization served on the African continent. Um, 
I want to spend some time on Favut's early career because I think it sheds a great deal of light on how he understood ideas and their uses. Um, it also sheds light on how and why he became an ethnic nationalist and a social engineer. <clears throat> Favut was born in 1901 in the Netherlands to a modest petty bourgeois family. Um, his father was a pious Calvinist but didn't have a good enough education to pursue a career in the church. And his parents emigrated to Cape Town in 1903 when Favut was a very small child. His father began by selling groceries in Cape Town's southern suburbs at first, um, earning a very modest income. Um, but when Favut was nine, his father qualified as a lay missionary and moved the family to Bulawayo, where he got a job assisting a Dutch Reformed parish. Um, Favut was educated in an English medium school in Bulawayo, and by all accounts, he was an A student, something of a superstar. Um, in his early teens, he was taken out of school in Bulawayo because his parents moved again. Uh, to South Africa, but this time not to Cape Town, but to uh, Brantford, uh, a town in the middle of the Orange Free State, uh, which was almost an entirely rural province where the vast majority of whites were Afrikaans speakers. And there his father traveled the countryside hawking Bibles and religious tracts, uh, for which he received small commissions from the church. So for what was by no stretch of the imagination a blue-blood Afrikaner. Um, in fact, even at the height of his career, the Afrikaans poet Anki Krok remembers that, in, that her own blue-blood parents uh, whispering in the privacy of their home in Kronstadt that Favut and his wife Be Betsy were a little common. Uh, what sort of woman they muttered quietly has five children. Uh, for, so Favut ascended by the force of his wits and his charisma and his very agile brain. He was very much self-made, and, and that's important, as we'll see. He enrolled at Stellenbosch University in 1918, immediately performed very well and got a degree in theology. And at this point, he abandoned what seemed to be his father's plans for him to join the church, and in graduate studies, switched to uh, one of the most secular disciplines, psychology. Uh, and in 1924, he obtained his doctorate cum laude. Now, he was a, a star student, as he had been at school, and the moment he graduated, many opportunities presented themselves. Um, he won a prestigious Abe Bailey scholarship to study here at Oxford. Um, and turned it down, and instead went to study in Germany at a, in a, on a far less uh, remunerative scholarship. And he did that for two years, then went on a six-month study tour of the United States, where he spent time at Columbia, Harvard, and Yale, uh, returned to Stellenbosch in 1927, and a couple of years later became the founder and first head of a sociology department at Stellenbosch. And he remained there until 1937, when he suddenly abandoned a very promising career in academia and became a political activist. He packed up his fast-growing family and moved to Johannesburg, where he became editor of the new newspaper called Die Transvaler, uh, an organ of the Afrikaner Nationalist uh, National Party, which came to power 11 years later, at which time Favut became a full-time politician in his capacity as an NP representative in the South African Senate. Now, all of Favut's biographers have placed a lot of weight in his early decision to reject an offer uh, to go to Oxford and to study instead in Germany. And they've also read this youthful decision retrospectively. They argue, firstly, that it shows an early anglophobia, and, and secondly, an early attraction to the intellectual climate of right-wing ethnic nationalism that was taking seed in German academic philosophy at the time. Now, this take on why Favut went to Germany, uh, long held to be undisputed fact, is actually very dubious. It wasn't until the early 1990s that a, a rigorous historian of social science, an American by the name of Roberta Belstad, 
sat down and read Fufut's doctoral thesis, traced his intellectual journey during his two and a half years abroad, and read the sociology lectures he delivered to his students in Stellenbosch after he returned home from his studies. And the story that emerges from her research is very different from the standard one. For a start, for a colorful and charismatic man, Fufut's doctoral thesis was almost mind-numbingly dull. It was a study of people's emotional responses to changes in color, and its methodology was blindly positivist. One after the other, Fawut sat hundreds of people down in a bare room, flashed changing colors in front of them, and using fairly crude methods, tried to map their changing emotions to the changes in the color. Um, he returned from Germany and the United States with considerably more methodological sophistication. Among the fields he learned was psychometrics which suggests that were, were he to have redone his doctoral research, it would have been a far more sophisticated document. But importantly, despite its increasing sophistication, his work remained quite narrow and technical. The sociology department he built at Stellenbosch after his studies abroad would today be called a social work or maybe a social policy department. He, he saw the social scientists as a technician, uh, orchestrating modest practical interventions into the lives of the poor. In fact, the sociology curriculum he put together at Stellenbosch in the early 30s is noteworthy mainly for what it wasn't. He evinced no interest at all in large-scale social engineering. And, and this was in spite of the fact that during his time at Columbia and Harvard in the late 20s, Taylorism or, sci or scientific management uh, was very much in vogue. And, and, and Taylorism was the height of social engineering. It was grounded in the idea that, that any process can be t entirely re-engineered by a centralized managerial system. And, and second, his lecture notes in the early 30s, in his lecture notes in the early 30s, there's hardly a trace of ethnic nationalism. He's extremely concerned about white poverty, but never about Afrikaans poverty. In fact, his notes stress the importance of Afrikaans and English benevolent societies working in concerts to tackle common problems. And this in spite of the fact that during his time in Germany, ethnic nationalism and eugenics were both increasingly in vogue in, in universities. So he, they were there in the atmosphere, but they passed him by. And finally, there's no trace of apartheid thinking in his early career. In one of his lectures, he argues that the only effective remedy for black poverty is urbanization. And this is obviously the very antithesis of apartheid. Now, Balstead argues that Fawut's choice of Germany over Oxford had nothing to do with either Anglophobia or with ethnic nationalism. She points out that in Hamburg, where he spent much of his time, uh, uh, offered a far better training in American-inspired empirical social science than Oxford did. And then all probability, that's why he went to Germany. Uh, for his supervisor at Stellenbosch um, was himself an empirical social scientist trained in the American mold. And that's also why he followed his time in Germany with a study tour at three American universities. When, when he returned to South Africa, it seems he was neither an ethnic nationalist nor proponent of high modernist transformation. He was a, a well-trained expert in technical interventions of social work. And in fact, if one's looking for signs of the later Vervoets in the early Vervoets, I don't think it's to his ideas that one should turn, um, but I think to the value and the pleasure that he, he placed in performance. Um, I try to track people whose uh, fathers or mothers or, or, or uncles were, were in Fawitz classes at Stellenbosch uh, and, and track down a few. And there's one recurring story of, of the manner in which he lectured. He, he'd lecture with great theater and great drama, very enthrallingly. 
Um, and in those days, in Stellenbosch, a bell would ring at the end of class. And he, the bell would ring and he would stop and freeze, whoever he was, and stop in mid-sentence and walk out of the class. And, <laughs> and the next day, he'd walk into the class and go to the exact spot he'd been in before and carry on in mid-sentence where he'd been. And, and it seems that this was his signature. Everybody remembered him for, for this. Um, and in all seriousness, I, I think that this story is more illuminating of his future trajectory than any of the ideas he expressed at the time. Uh, because I think it draws us to what was perhaps really important in his early career, and, and that was his discovery of the public stage, of power, uh, and, and of what he could do there. Um, he was, in a sense, fortunate that his primary intellectual int interest, white poverty, brought him very close to the exercise of power. The great urgent question in the early 1930s, across the, political, the white political spectrum, was the very troubling manner in which uh, rural whites were urbanizing. White people who had subsisted for generations in the land were streaming into the city, poor, uneducated, unskilled. And the great project at the time was to distinguish them from black people, culturally and materially, um, as, as a condition of continued white supremacy. So for Witt's primary intellectual question, what to do about poor whites, was the political question of the day. And as a result, he found himself at the interface between social science and political power. From 1928 to 33, the very influential uh, Carnegie Commission of Inquiry into White Poverty in South Africa sat. And among other things, it was probably the single most intensive transfer of American social science methods to South African institutions. Um, in, in 1934, a national conference of a broad range of South African welfare and benevolent organizations and churches was convened to give a response to the Carnegie Commission's multi-volume report. And for which was one of the 12 people charged with organizing the conference. Um, and, it, and it seems that it was there that he discovered his vocation. Well, although he was just one in 12 conveners, he dominated both the conference public performance and, it seems, its backroom workings. And he clearly discovered his skill at mobilizing political resources, um, at orchestrating a diverse range of organizations and interests into a common program, in lobbying behind closed doors. In, in short, he discovered what a great talent he had for exercising power. The signs that his politics were changing came two years later, in 1936, when he was at the forefront of a protest at Stellenbosch against Jewish immigration. Just three years earlier, he'd written something of a semetophilic, is there such a word, semetophilic lecture, praising the remarkable Jewish contribution to Western civilization and commerce. And then in 1937, his life took a dramatic turn. He resigned his tenured position and a very promising career in the academy, packed up his young, already large family, and took them to Johannesburg. Um, he'd agreed to take a job as editor of Die Transvaale, uh, a new propaganda organ being set up by the Ethno-Nationalist National Party. It had no secure funding and would have to be run on a shoestring. And for Wood's very first bylined article for Die Transvaale was a diatribe against Jews. He argued that they were hoarding positions in the professions and in commerce, and that a system of what we today call affirmative action should be instituted. Positions in the professions, he said, should be divided among white people on a proportional basis, uh, reflecting the composition of the national population. For so Witt's natural, uh, Transvaal's natural advertising base was the Jewish traders who dominated retail commerce in the Transvaal countryside, and they promptly withdrew their adverts from the Transvaal. And the newspaper was perennially in financial trouble, as was for Witt himself. He would set up various small businesses in the coming years, some of them little hairbrands, like a used car dealership and a scheme to deliver groceries to housewives uh, to supplement his income. But the crucial points are these, that, that for Wood's apparent conversion to ethnic nationalism appeared to have been very swift, and it was coupled with a radical career change. 
he, he gave up a tenured job and an illustrious career in the making for a very uncertain future. And this at a time when he had several young children to support. And, and my speculation is that he found his vocation at the 1934 Conference on Poverty. And he learned there that what he relished most was the exercise of power and discovered that he was very skilled at it. His move from the academy to the Transvala above all evinces enormous reserves of self-belief. I'm not suggesting that his new ethno-nationalist alignment was necessarily cynical. He may well have come to believe in it quite deeply. But I'm saying that coming to believe in the folk was perhaps an adjunct to or a consequence of believing in himself. In other words, Afrikaner nationalism was perhaps a vehicle that carried his self-belief. And in this sense, the place of ideas in his career was secondary or instrumental. Now, if all of this is true of the young Vervoort, is it also true of the later Vervoort, the architect of apartheid? Are the ideas of high modernism he ostensibly adopted to re-engineer South African society also to be understood as an instrument or a vehicle to achieve other ends? <clears throat> One could certainly make this argument plausibly by following his career trajectory. When the National Party came to power in 1948, he became a senator, and he knew that the route to power was through the cabinet and that within the cabinet, wielding influence depended on which part of the state one commanded. And from the beginning, he had his eye on the Department of Native Affairs, and when he became minister responsible for it in 1952, he set about turning it into the largest and most influential machine in the state bureaucracy. And three things about this project of his are noteworthy. I mean, the first is the sheer energy with which he put himself to the task. He was a notorious workaholic who was known to work 16, 18 hours a day, and who rallied his underlings to work just as hard. And there was a feverish atmosphere in his ministry. Secondly, in building the NAD into a mega bureaucracy, he exercised all the political skill he discovered at the Poverty Conference in 1934, orchestrating married agendas and interests and fashioning them into a single project, learning to use language as a weapon, learning to rob one's adversaries of the power of language. In short, he flourished, and by the accounts of those who worked with him, he had a ball. And thirdly, the NAD bureaucracy he built was an ambitious politician's triumph of strategic thinking because he managed to insinuate it into the rest of the state machinery such that its presence felt, was felt ubiquitously across much of the, the gamut of state activity from urban planning to housing to agricultural policy to policy for the Bantustans. <clears throat> for Wood's work in the 1950s, in other words, was a masterclass in how to acquire power. And by the mid-50s, very little of substance could happen in the South African state without the involvement of the bureaucracy he had built, and that's without his involvement. <clears throat> now, the machinery he built was, of course, a, a high modernist set of tools. It was the machinery charged with the momentous task of reversing, or at least halting, the seemingly inexorable growth of the urban black population, and to engineer South Africa into a form in which white people could constitute a permanent urban majority. And there's a parallel here between Favots of the late 30s and of the, early, of the mid-50s. <clears throat> the early Favots, I would contend, came to believe in ethnic nationalism as a function of his desire to enter politics. The later Favots, it's plausible to suggest, became a social engineer as a function of his desire to become prime minister. This is not to say that there's an intrinsic tension between the two things. In fact, one could argue that in order to be an effective ethno-nationalist or an effective social engineer, one would need to be a person anxious to acquire power. But equally, if one acquired one's ideas too instrumentally, uh, they're disposed to hollow out or to become disconnected from the intrinsic values that are supposed to animate them. And I contend that this is what happened with Favut. What, what were the major tasks of Favut's apartheid project? It's best to take a broad, transnational view of the question and answer it in the context of the colonial project in Africa as a whole. 
As several scholars from William to John Eilif to Fred Cooper have pointed out, although Europe's colonial powers um, had conquered many sub-Saharan uh, Africa's black polities by 1900, they had by no stretch of the imagination destroyed uh, pre-colonial ways of life. Most Africans were still tied to the land. Most lived lives and practiced values their forebearers uh, may well have recognized. Colonial rule was thus a process of bargaining, and, and whether they collaborated or resisted, many of the colonized aimed to preserve what had been theirs. And South Africa, despite the birth and rapid growth of two large extractive industries in the late 19th century, um, does fit the description above. As late as 1936, only 17% of black people lived in the city for any part of the year. Whites outnumbered blacks in all of the country's urban centers. In Johannesburg, the heartland of South Africa's urban economy, four out of five black people were men, and the majority had homes in the countryside. They only came to the cities to acquire resources for their rural lives. Um, as Williams argued, to the extent that black and white bargained and accommodated, they did so primarily over lands, and, and not uh, over rights to land rather than cities. But between the beginning of the Great Depression and the end of the Second World War, the situation changed dramatically. In the late 20s, less than a million black people lived in South African cities. By 1946, the number was 1.8 million. The, the black urban population had doubled in the space of a generation. One reason was general population growth. In 1921, there were 4.7 million black people in South Africa. By 1946, there were 7.8 million. And another reason is that black people were urbanizing in increasing numbers. Um, <coughs> Uh, in, the, in the early 30s, one in six black people lived in cities. By 1946, the number was close to one in four. <clears throat> now, there's an irony here that goes to the heart of, of, of 20th century South Africa's condition. Blacks began urbanizing so fast, in part because their labor was demanded in the cities. When the gold standard collapsed in, in 1932 and the price of the metal escalated, gold production in Johannesburg's mining industry accelerated rapidly, requiring more labor, and the industries accumulating profits were invested in manufacturing and services, and these also expanded and needed labor. And South Africa was fast industrializing, and its white population was growing richer, and a crucial ingredient to this prosperity was, was black hands and feet. So white South Africa needed black labor in the cities, but it feared the presence of black people in the cities, and until now it had been possible to disentangle the two. Uh, the blacks who performed much of the urban economy's un- and semi-skilled work had their hearts in the countryside and were sure to return there, and thus didn't people the cities in a substantive sense. And this is precisely what began changing in the 30s. Black people were hunkering down in urban South Africa in unprecedented ways and numbers, and whites had adapted neither the machinery nor the mentalities to deal with them. Now, South Africa didn't face these questions alone. I mean, across colonized Africa, the black population was both growing and urbanizing at unprecedented rates. And none of the colonial administrations had ever governed African countries with large, settled, uh, uh, majority urban populations. The very machinery of colonial rule was underpinned by the assumption that most Africans were rural and that they lived their lives connected, uh, they lived in ways connected to the lives of their forebears um, and recognized modified versions of pre colonial authority. Um, population growth and urbanization were both colonialism's most far reaching consequence and its worst crisis. Uh, Fred Cooper's and John Eilip's respective arguments that the task of governing Africans in cities and in large numbers defeated the colonial powers and led to their withdrawal has, I think, now been accepted by many. White South Africa was in a very different position. <clears throat> they constitute a large, settled population uh, that it's hitched, hitched its future to the African continent. And the path that the colonial powers ultimately took, that of leaving, was unavailable. 
So the most urgent question facing white South Africa at the end of the Second World War was how to live in such proximity to so many black people, how to acquire their labor and yet avoid being overwhelmed by their aspirations. And in the parlance at the time, this was referred to as the native question. Now, for Wood's answer to this question was nothing if not audacious. And I say for Wood's answer because there were always many different voices in the National Party, which we can return to. In fact, Favut's answer can best be described as greedy, for he wanted to cake, have his cake and eat it. He wanted rapid, rapid industrial growth at a pace that would allow much of the white population to live the sort of suburban middle-class lives Americans were beginning to live, and he wanted the furnaces of this rapid growth to be fed by black labor, uh, but he wanted to achieve all of this without any major political or cultural incorporation of black people into, into South Africa's modernization projects. And, and this is the context uh, in which for what the high modernist needs to be understood, uh, for it was through the practices of high modernist engineering that he attempted to have his cake and eat it. So what is high modernism? I, I think that James Scott's metaphor of the forest and the forester uh, 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 remains unsurpassed. A timber producer, Scott writes, does not like wild forest. Among the diversity of trees that grow there, some wood is useful, some isn't. Years of accumulated scrub and undergrowth make the terrain hard to navigate and traverse. And most important, the forest is illegible. Even if one manages to find an elevated vantage point from which to examine it, uh, the question of how, uh, how much good wood it harbors and where this wood is concentrated and the obstacles one will face removing its remains guesswork. The good forester endeavors to make the forest legible. He maps it, marking where harvestable wood is to be found, where a ravine makes transportation impossible, where a flat, wide passage lends itself to hauling. But a scientific forester, one who practices the art at its pinnacle, tears down the anarchic forest and plants a regimented one. He grows only what he'll be able to harvest and clears out the rest, and he seeds the forest in a fashion that the whole will be legible to him. At the limit, Scott writes, the forest itself would not even have to be seen. It could be read accurately from the tables and maps in the forester's office. Now, long before Favutz and his contemporaries, practitioners of modern statecraft exhibited at least some of the characteristics of the forester. Over centuries, properties were given title deeds and represented on cadastral maps um, in order that their owners could be taxed, and men were given surnames so that state officials could identify them and thus conscript them into armies. Uh, and those who, controlled, those who controlled modern states wanted to see and to count, but their purposes were still crude. They missed really to tax, to conscripts, and to maintain order. Um, it was from 20th century military conflict that the true human forester was born. In mobilizing for the First World War, European nations gathered the people and material at their border, uh, within their borders and shaped them to a common purpose. In other words, those who managed states learned to do more than order and count and more than extract tax and command able bodies. Like the scientific forester, they strove to shape the entire terrain into a pattern designed to execute a series of goals. Um, Winston Churchill, oddly enough, was among the first people to grasp the implications of what the First World War had done to the modern world. All the noblest virtues, he wrote in 1928, were gathered together to strengthen the destructive capacity of the mass. Good finances, the resources of worldwide credit and trade, the accumulation of large capital reserves made it possible to, desert, to divert a considerable period, for considerable periods the energies of whole peoples to the task of devastation. Now, many of Havut's goals changed over the years in response to the pressure exerted by events. 
and the ideological garb in which he clothed his goals changed considerably in response to the massive successes of the African Nationalist Project across the continent in the early 60s. But what didn't change from the early policy documents he drafted in the, in the early 1930s to his death in 1966 was his goal of countering ordering and thus seeing black people, in other words, making them visible in the forest's sense, in order to control the pace and the manner in which they urbanized. In the early 50s, he spent a lot of time consulting the Stellenbosch demographer Jan Saadi, who told him, very erroneously, that by the last quarter of the 20th century, South Africa would have 18 million inhabitants, 12 million black, 6 million white. In his memoirs of the early 50s, Voot <clears throat> wrote that the task of the machinery he was, he was constructing was to keep 6 million people of these black people in the countryside. For if there was parity between black and white people in the cities, he believed whites, white control remained possible. <coughs> and, and the means enlisted to achieve this end were classically high modernist and took much of the 1950s to build. In the first instance, every person in the country was indeed counted and given a racial classification, which was <clears throat> filed in a central population register. And, and this process, which took well more than a decade to accomplish, tells an extraordinary story uh, in itself. The criteria for determining a person's race were intuitive and ad hoc. They ranged from the color of the skin on the underside of a person's forearm, to the way he spat on the ground, to the friends he kept. And the intuitions enlisted were those of underemployed white working class people. In other words, the, the people who were most sensitive and finely tuned uh, intuitive sense to the differences between white and black. <clears throat> Another component was the construction of the administrative process that would regulate the access of black people to cities. And the overarching principle was to create full employment among uh, uh, black urban populations. In other words, the task was on the one hand to create a system in which the only black people permitted to reside in the cities were those whose labor was needed by the urban economy, and yet to make black movement in and out of the cities sufficiently fluid to respond to the changing needs of urban labor markets. At the broadest level, two categories of black people were created for this purpose. <clears throat> the first was those entitled to live and work in cities simply by virtue of being urban-born or long-time urban residents or, and laborers. And these were the holders of precious Section 10 passes, which made them immune to being ejected from cities. Who was included in this category shifted and was subject to struggle and compromise, but the, the core was the urban-born. And the second broad category was those permitted in urban areas only if the authorities have decided that their labor was required. Any black person without a Section 10 pass had to report to a labor bureau within 72 hours of entering an urban area. And all employers in turn were required to lodge their labor requirements with the labor bureau and were not permitted to recruit labor except through the bureau, unless they were employing Section 10, obviously. The bureau would decide whether a person's work was needed and where he would work. Thus, a person reporting to a labor bureau within 72 hours of entering an urban area would either be told to go back to the countryside or be given the stamp in his passbook permitting him to stay unconditional on his continued employment. And so, in the spirits of human forestry, people became visible so that they could be ordered to the dictates of particular purposes. A person was obliged by law to carry an identity document at all times, and in that document was all the information the forester required, his race, urban status, employment status. One of the many elements the system required, of course, was massive enforcement. Everyone carrying a passbook had to expect to be asked to produce it ubiquitously. There could be no hiding for the from the forester. <clears throat> now, I, I think it's safe to say that every single component of the system began to fail in its essential task the moment it was implemented, and never stopped failing until it fell apart less than three decades later. And, and moreover, I, I think that the fact that it was failing was clearly visible from the summits of the apartheid state. 
Now, the first failure was one of, of elementary design, and the flaw was that the urban core, who held Section 10 rights, were permitted to live in urban South Africa irrespective of whether they worked. And the result is that many refused to work in formal labor markets and opted for the autonomy of the informal sector instead. In the 1950s, it was estimated that more than two-thirds of urban youth under the Vardis Ranch were neither in work nor in school. And the situation in Cape Town was similar. When the young anthropologist Archie Maferje began fieldwork in Lange in 1960, he reported that the urban-born were disdainful of factory work and left it to migrant workers from the Transkei. And in fact, in 1960, a decade into a policy, the explicit goal of which was to achieve full employment in urban labor markets, <clears throat> the rate of urban black unemployment was at its highest in 20 years. And so the urban core was precisely the opposite of what it was intended to be. It was meant to constitute the heart of the black urban labor market, and thus to function to limit further black influx. And instead, it incubated black disgruntlement in the heart of the city. And the secret door to this Trojan horse was opened in June 76. Uh, those in the front lines of the national youth insurgency of that year almost all had Section 10 rights in their, in their passbooks. <coughs> so why did Favot make so elementary a flaw? Simply because he had no choice. He couldn't take Section 10 rights away from urban black people because they fought him too hard. In other words, people are not like trees. They are less easily uprooted. And so the premise of the high modernist project, that he is a designer, is problematic. And the mechanical and design metaphors he uses to describe his work, which he always did, obsessively in the early 50s, and in fact had a very shallow reach for what he was doing in practice. <clears throat> As for the second category of black people, those whose access to urban residence and employment was meant to be regulated by labor bureaus, this too began to fail almost as soon as it was initiated. By the early 60s, there were nearly 600 labor bureaus, and 7.6 million people had been issued with passes. And yet from the beginning, the bureaus were a bureaucratic nightmare um, that employers across the economy simply bypassed employing hundreds of thousands of people off the books. It's impossible to ascertain precisely how many people who staffed the shop floors of urban industry, retail and services were in the city illegally, but anecdotal evidence suggests that they were ubiquitous. A succession of police reports in the late 50s and early 60s complained that past laws cannot keep people out of the city while everyone employs illegal labor. One report complains that the worst offender is local government. In other words, <clears throat> that the people employed to clean the streets of Johannesburg by the city of Johannesburg are in the city illegally. So even government or organs themselves were flouting uh, the laws of influx control. <clears throat> if the forester's goal is to keep the urban forest trimmed, I mean, exactly the opposite happened um, during the first decade of apartheid. Between 1950 and 1960, the resident black population of urban South Africa increased by 47%, the faster fast escalation than ever before in South African history. <clears throat> Moreover, by 1960, Saudi's demographic projections of a decade earlier were a laughingstock, uh, openly laughed about in the newspapers. The bl black population was clearly growing much quicker than projected, and the assumption of urban parity between black and white was clearly not achievable. A realistic project to prolong white rule would have to assume a ratio of as many as three or four black people to one white in urban areas. So if a cardinal purpose of any high modernist project is to make social relationships visible for the purpose of ordering them, South Africa is becoming increasingly opaque and quite clearly beyond the powers of manipulation of those holding uh, the leaves of state power. Now, it's almost inconceivable that Favut didn't see this clearly by 1960. And it's precisely at this time, in the wake of the terrible crisis of the Sharpe Massacre and on the eve of South Africa's expulsion from the Commonwealth, that a window of opportunity arose to do things very differently. 
Um, in the closing months of 1960, it seemed that most of the senior members of Havut's cabinet were in favor of experimenting with limited urban rights for black people. They were preparing, in other words, to dip their toes into uncharted racial waters. The Dutch Reformed Church was increasingly drifting from Havut. The idea that apartheid was incompatible with theological doctrine was, was circulating the, the senior ranks of, of Afrikaans theologians. And Afrikaans public intellectuals were openly propagating change. <clears throat> the most authoritative mainstream Afrikaans voice among them was the celebrated poet, N.P.F. van Weg Lowe, who was writing with great eloquence and much passion about the imperative of balancing the quest for survival against the dictates of justice. Favut chose not to reform. <clears throat> he quelled Afrikaner dissent on all fronts, from his own cabinet to the ranks of the church, and he turned the expulsion from the Commonwealth and the hosting of Macmillan's famous Winds of Change speech to his advantage, using it very successfully to fashion an image of himself as an unflinching man of granite. <clears throat> um, he thus, in the early 1960s, became as close to a patrician leader as South Africa has ever had, uh, and was very popular at the time, uh, unilaterally in command, running the state at full throttle. He also cranked up the bureaucratic machinery he'd built in the 50s and turned the screws of urban apartheid tighter, narrowing the core population with Section 10 rights and expanding the machinery of enforcement. In the year of his death, 1966, the number of people processed for past laws peaked at three-quarters of a million. Now, in terms of real politic, what Favut did in the early 60s was a towering achievement. He managed to bend the South African policy to his will. And this was in part because uh, the substantial bureaucratic power he established in the South African state gave him immense power over his opponents. <clears throat> but it's also because his reading of the delicate situation of 1960 and 61 was spot on. He knew that for all of the United States' threats to cut credit lines to South Africa, and for all of Britain's talk of winds of change, both countries wanted above all a stable political dispensation in South Africa in the medium term, and he knew that he could deliver it. These were golden years of steep global economic growth, and South Africa's industries were growing at about 4% a year at best, so he saw no reason to change course. And yet it's hard not to conclude that in the very process of taking command of the present, Favut cast the future adrift and passed on its problems to future generations. For if tightening the screws of urban apartheid assisted his triumph in the here and now, there can be little doubt that he knew very well that it had lost whatever ability it ever had to shape the future. <clears throat> It's in this sense that I call the Favut of the early 60s a nihilist, for he seems to have expressed a fairly aggressive disinterest in the next generation. And it's also here that we confront most starkly the, the paradox I, I mentioned at the beginning of this talk. It was precisely when the High Modernist Project in South Africa was at full throttle in the mid-1960s that it was most visibly disconnected from what ought to be its intrinsic purpose, which is shaping the future. Now, reading the daily newspapers um, in, in the Afrikaans press during that time, I was surprised to see how clearly public intellectuals at the heart of the apartheid project saw this. I'd always thought that the economic boom of that time, together with the striking success in, in repressing black opposition, had produced a sense of complacency. But reading the, the papers, I found the, uh, the contrary. Um, expressions of deep searching doubt, evidence on almost every day in the mid-1960s, in the pages of Afrikanerdom's two most influential dailies, Die Burger and Bildt both run by uh, people who supported Vavut strongly in the late 50s. So I'll just pick one example uh, among many. The story appeared prominently in Die Burger eight days before Vavut's death under the headline, uh, Build White Village for South Africa Says Jew. The Jew in question is a man named Henry Katzen, and he was a Johannesburg journalist who had just returned from a trip to Israel where he had visited a kibbutz, which he referred to as a small town that a group of young people 
had with their own hands under, under unbelievably dis- difficult conditions built. Um, and this construction of something from nothing had filled Katzen with many ideas for South Africa. With white labor, he said, a white town must be built where only whites live. And such a town will grow, fred by the strength of its men and women, and it will be the first of several. And behind his proposal was a broader message. Quote, let us not leave the unborn with a solution, in inverted commas, uh, but a new way of life, one in which we do not depend on the labor of other people. For as things were, Hudson continued, South Africans' vision of separate development stands only on paper <clears throat> and is refuted every day in our streets, in our businesses, and on our farms. The editorial of that day's edition of Die Burger was devoted to Katzen's speech. It was, quote, better than any theoretical tract about partition. What Katzen said to Afrikaners was short and powerful, that they cannot be free for as long as they rely on the labors of others. It would be a great irony, the editorial continued, if having cast off enslavement from above, a reference to British rule, Afrikaners were ensnared by the creeping enslavement from below, the enslavement to black labor power. <clears throat> to appreciate the import of these words, must, one must understand something of the newspaper's readers. Just three decades before uh, this edition of Die Burger was published, most Afrikaans-speaking whites were poor. In 1933, for instance, it was estimated that, one, um, uh, that for every 100 Afrikaners who started school, only eight completed. 56% of Afrikaans' children were found to be inadequately clothed and fed. Now, in the space of one and a half generations, white poverty had all but disappeared. Many thousands of people <clears throat> who read that morning's edition of Die Burger uh, did so in new suburban homes, a car in the driveway, a black woman preparing breakfast in the kitchen. Their parents had known none of this, and, and prosperity was a recent achievement. So Die Burger's authoritative voice brought discomforting news. Everything you've acquired, its readers were told, is built on sand. More precisely, it is built by black hands. The foundations of your good times are another's labor. We are dependent on other people with other, aspiration, with other aspirations. They will not serve us forever. Unless we begin right now to organize very different, our lives very differently, we're in trouble. Now, there's some evidence that Ravut saw things this way, too. On the last afternoon of his life, the Prime Minister walked into the parliamentary chamber next to his chief whip and confidant, Kursk Portketer. Ravut was laughing. The two men had just shared a joke. And uh, has uh, never divulged the source of Ravut's last laugh. But he did, many years later, uh, apparently reveal the confidence he claims Favut shared with him the week before he died. Favut, Porketa told the businessman, Anton Rupert, um, told him that apartheid in any of its conceivable forms could not be made to work. In other words, uh, that in his primary task of securing white people, it would fail. Astonished, Porketa asked Favut what he would do. And Favut replied, according to Porketa, that people don't accept change easily and for that for the moment he would do very little. Now, the story could be apocryphal. Um, um, Ackerman, uh, 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 Anton Rupert had, had, had many reasons to, uh, to tell us. It was a self-justifying story. Um, but some scholars, though, have taken Portkitt's account as the basis of speculating that had Favut lived, he would soon have made huge policy announcements and changed the course of South African history. It seems more plausible to me, though, to take uh, Portkitt's account quite literally. Favut both said that apartheid couldn't work and that there was little to be done for the moment. So it could be that by then, Favut had acquired such deep reserves of self-confidence that he believed that he could take on South Africa one day at a time. I mean, he had, after all, been so stunningly successful at working his political environment over the previous six years, both domestically and abroad. 
But that's just another way of saying that the high modernist machinery he commanded was unhinged from its ostensible purposes and, and was a tool for managing the present. Now, why is this important? And I've suggested some historical African reasons, and there are also some current-day South African reasons. As the ANC's management of the states uh, grows demonstrably poorer and more corrupt, black critics with strong liberation movement credentials are increasingly taking the ruling party to task. And in doing so, they use an assortment of rhetorical instruments. Um, And one of them, and I won't mention his name because there was a quarter on it, was behind closed doors, (laughs) but said... Uh, whatever else they did, those who governed South Africa under apartheid got things done, and we can neither build on what they be- we can either build on what they bequeathed us, or we can destroy it. Now, I'm all for taking on um, a corrupt, uh, taking a corrupt government to task, and and all more for people with strong liberation movement credentials taking the ANC to task, but the historical narrative suggested there, I, I think, is unfair and unfortunate. It, it feeds off the myth of Avut the architect, the man who drew a blueprint and then implemented it. And in fact, much of the apartheid bureaucracy in the 60s was sclerotic. Of all documents, the Commission of Inquiry into Vavut's assassination reveals just how stunningly inept the bureaucracy was at its cardinal high modernist task of making society visible. It's indeed a document of high comedy and ought to be read by anybody who harbors any residual belief that Vavut's bureaucracy performed its tasks very well. And as for apartheid's economic feats, the years of high apartheid were boom years across the planet. Everybody's economy was growing. As Charles Meth and others have persuasively argued, apartheid South Africa was growing very, very modestly when compared to, uh, to similar economies. And so the business of conjuring a phantom of Germanic apartheid efficiency with which to scold the, the mortal black people who run South Africa today is not right. Superior white ghosts are precisely what the country doesn't need. The final reason why this, why this matters is that in a broad sense, history is repeating itself. The ANC came to power with its own modernist project. Among the goals of the project was that of giving black people the very suburban lives the white minority, white minority rule delivered during Favut's time in the 60s. And it remains among the ANC's animating projects. And yet those at the helm of the ANC also know that it isn't achievable. And so once again, a creaky state machinery is deployed to create a future uh, state of affairs leaders know will never arrive. And a modernist discourse about tomorrow is being used to acquire and wield power today. And the ANC has far more in common with Favut than it would care to admit. Thanks.